Uh, our topic today is one that is often brought up as a perennial challenge, not only to the church, but uh, even to the very credibility of God's existence, of believing in God. See, in this sense, I think it's interesting because it's a much more foundational question than many of the others which maybe deal with a particular doctrine or with a certain practice that we as Christians participate in because it presents itself as a contradiction, which again makes belief in uh, a God who is love untenable, or at least makes it seem untenable. So the subject shouldn't come as a surprise because we're in the middle of our uh, you asked for it series, so many of you uh, sitting here now uh, are ones who wrote this down when we were looking for a topic to discuss. So you highlighted it as an issue which needs addressing. So today, if you see in your bulletins, we're going to discuss the problem of extreme pain and suffering in this world and uh, how to reconcile these phenomena with this God that we believe in who is love. And you know, before I get into it, I just want to uh, take a moment to thank Pastor Jim for giving me such a, a softball topic. Um, you know, I mean, he could have given me any number of difficult ones, but, uh, you know, he gave me this one. And uh, I'll, you know, I could have used more of a challenge, but we'll see what we can make of this one. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, in all seriousness, it, it is a, a very imposing kind of topic to address. And there's a, a part of me that would almost rather, you know, not have written anything, you know, and that's it's not, the, not the good part, but I mean, there's a, there's a hesitancy to kind of even, can words even get to this topic? Can words even get to the heart of what's going on in, in real suffering, real uh, torment in the world? But I, I think that they can, and uh, I, I think that's, uh, there's quite a few answers that we as Christians can, can dive into. You know, in this world, hardship, misfortune, and misery they are about as obvious and apparent as they are sometimes resistant to explanation. Even in a place as blessed and fortunate as Sebastopol, California, and we live in a, quite a blessed area, I'm willing to bet you wouldn't have to walk more than a half mile in any given direction from this church to find enough examples of profound loss, of, of heartache, of, of just hurt to weigh very heavily on you. See, these experiences that we have, they lead to sincere questions which all too often hang in the air unanswered by us as Christians. You know, questions like, why did my dad leave before I was old enough to know him? Or, you know, why did I get this disease? Why did I get cancer? Why, why did my family member have to die before uh, it seemed like it was their time? You know, what, what was the reason for even in our context, you know, something like the fires that recently uh, happened in Sonoma and Napa counties. You know, how, how could God let these things happen? That's the question that underlies all the specifics. But again, I believe that Christianity is not mute in the face of suffering. It's not mute in the face of pain. And I think actually the truth is the opposite. I believe that it is in the very midst of suffering where the radiance of truth and the light of Christ shines out all the clearer. So it's in a short half hour, as far as we can dive into it, that's going to be our task for today. And as I 
typical kind of disclaimer for me, you know, I have lots of references, um, lots of scripture. Um, this is a thematic sermon, so it's not based on a single passage, but so I'm going to touch on a lot of places and a lot of references. So, you know, make good use of, of your pens and your notes if you like, and uh, this is something that we'll continue to want to wrestle with long after this half-hour sermon is done. So, uh, the first point that I want us to recognize this morning, you might have it in your bulletins, is the reality of suffering, is that Christianity is a religion which not only acknowledges suffering as something that's real in the world, and that you might take it for granted that that's what everything does, but there are some beliefs which actually don't and want to kind of dismiss certain experiences in the world as illusory or something like that, but it places suffering right at the core of its identity. See, when God in the fullness of time saw fit to dwell with us as a human being and to model for us the perfect human life, He chose a life that was replete with agony. I mean, think of that. You know, Jesus did, I mean, in theory, you know, it seems like He could have chosen any life that He wanted to live among us, but He chose that one. When he sought to teach humanity the truth of the Father and to demonstrate the depths of divine love, he chose to do so through a path of mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical torture. He fulfilled that injunction to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength by having each of those capacities tested to their limit in the blistering forges of pain. You know, it's in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus is uh, prophesied in the Old Testament as this picture of this suffering servant. The passage reads, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. That's an that's a Old Testament prophecy of our, of our Savior. And, that, and that's the characterization of him. Because it's the true characterization. It's part of his mission. It's what he came to do. And not only that, we find in uh, the Nicene Creed. This is, uh, the Creed is one of the earliest and long-standing statements of faith that we have as Christians. In many churches, most churches still to this day, it is sort of the center of a, a mission statement. Our own mission statement as a church is heavily modeled after the Creed. Uh, it's sort of like the litmus test for what is the center of our faith. We still find a statement about believing in Jesus as the one who suffered, who knew what suffering was like. See, this excerpt from the Creed reads like this. It's talking about Jesus, of course. It says, For us and for our salvation, He, Jesus, came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures. So, to put it bluntly, the early church considered this so central to orthodox belief that in order to be a Christian in good standing, you had to profess a firm conviction that the Lord and Savior that you worship as God experienced true suffering in His earthly life. 
I never really fully grasped that before when you just gloss over what it says, okay, he did this, 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 this. But you had to believe that. You had to believe that he really suffered. And I don't think this was an accident by any means. Because one of the earliest attacks on Christianity from the very outset was a, a movement called docetism. It comes from the, the Greek uh, dokain, which means to seem or to appear as. And in some respects, the docetist was very similar to the, your standard Christian of the day. Except there was a crucial difference. See, the docetist believed that the bodily existence of Jesus was an illusion. That's where the word to appear as comes from. He, he didn't actually have a real body, uh, but he appeared to have one so that we could more easily learn what the lessons that he had to teach or something along those lines. But when you have no body, of course, you all realize the consequences of this, that the red flags that went up, you know, you have no body, you have no actual death on the cross. If you have no actual death on the cross, you can have no actual resurrection. And of course, if you have no physical body, you don't suffer. All that was just an illusion according to these people. It was just a picture. So the early defenders of our faith knew that this was a concession that could not be made. And the full reason why, I think we'll get to later on in the sermon, but 1 Peter 4.1 gives us a taste of it. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 reads, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. Whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. It's a very profound statement there. So, knowing that pain plays such an integral role in understanding our own faith, we can confidently face the challenge of suffering head-on. And this is something I really want to stress because I think as Christians, you know, this is, as someone who loves to debate and things like that, this is one of the biggest arguments that gets thrown my way, you know, is people say, oh yeah, you know, you believe in this God of love, okay, well what about, you know, all this pain and agony in the world, uh-huh, you know, and then it's supposed to be sort of like I'm supposed to kind of turn my face and just say, okay, never mind, never mind, you know, but no, you know, this, this is, Christianity is, is the religion that has the answer, we have the key, there's no question that the world can throw at us that we're supposed to just kind of cower in front of. That wouldn't make any sense. All truth is God's truth, and God has given us an answer to the question of suffering. So in wrestling with that, I, I don't want us to soften the blow too much. I mean, I don't want to um, be excessive in the examples, uh, but I, I want us to not treat the issue too trivially. So I want us to play the devil's advocate for a moment. I mean, is it not a, the case in the world that evil often has such a more, a more profound impact than good does. You know, as one German philosopher put it, where they write when they said that a thousand pleasures do not compensate for one pain. Don't we feel in our hearts that a, a part of this is true? I mean, even if we've been so fortunate as to avoid serious trauma in our lives, we can all think back to those moments, from maybe from our childhood or something like that, where, uh, you know, we were, our, our pet died, or when the kids at school made fun of us, or when we, you know, uh, were playing outside and we fell down and broke a bone. You know, we remember those things. We remember those moments that we were embarrassed, that we were maybe mocked, or that we were hurt. But so many of the good moments you can't even bring to recollection. And we know that as much as a single event of abuse can create psychological damage in our hearts and our minds that plays itself out for years to come, 
let alone entire periods of our lives in which strife and violence and depression and anxiety and ostracism and addiction all and more all too often become the reigning theme in our lives. And I know there's many of us in this room that have personally gone through this and experienced these kind of things. So why should these things be permitted? Why should they in a world with a God who loves us and who wishes for everybody to come to Him, to know Him? Can the God of love exist in this world? So, okay, so enough of the objections for the moment. I do believe that the Christian has several things to say to this. Firstly, and this is not to dismiss the objections, but it's to, it's to answer them. Firstly, this criticism misunderstands what we are. That's the first point. It misunderstands what we are. Secondly, it misunderstands the nature of the world we are in. And lastly, it fails to grasp how the interaction between us and the world can be fruitful even through suffering. So one at a time. Who we are. To ask for God to create a world of rational beings, that's what we are. Sometimes in the morning when we haven't had our coffee yet, we don't feel like rational beings. But uh, <laughs> that is God's greatest gift to us, one of God's greatest gifts. It's what separates us from plants and animals and uh, as beautiful as these other things are, the rest of creation. So we have to understand what we're asking when we're asking God to just eradicate the possibility of suffering, given what we are. So, to ask for God to create a world of rational beings in which they are prevented by force from ever freely choosing something outside the will of God is to ask for God to demean that very gift of rationality that makes us image bearers in the first place. It's to ask for God to go against His own intent in giving us this gift of free choice, of thought, of being able to approach the world with our minds. So in other words, being creatures of reason means being able to form judgments based on concepts we form by engaging with the world. And that's a beautiful thing that we do, and it's a gift. But if that is the case, then the only way that God could prevent the possibility of bad things from happening through us would be to literally invade our minds and reprogram us every single time we began to slip away. Of course, this is hardly dignifying to intellectual beings. I mean, we might as well have been made like plants if that was the plan. So the necessary price to be paid for creating rational creatures is to open up the possibility of freely willed decisions that fall outside the will of God. So that's point one. That's understanding who we are as rational creatures. Secondly, the world that we live in has been disordered by the fall. There's a lot to unpack in that. The imbalances and the difficulties we experience in dealing with creation are a far cry from the ideal design of this creator. So we don't have to pretend like the world that we're in now is somehow right and perfect and that we're just not getting it. There are actual disordered and imbalanced, imbalanced elements in the world. Paul describes the current state of affairs on earth very eloquently. There's a lot of references in the book of Romans in this sermon. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, Paul writes, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's us. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory 
and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up to the present time. See, so there's this picture of, of, of creation that, that is good, that God created, but that has been twisted and, and disordered and that it is not in its right place and it's just groaning, it's just waiting for, it's waiting to be restored. See, and Paul makes a very profound point here because creation isn't messed up just because God got angry and decided to make things harder on us arbitrarily. And that's often the picture that you get from the more skeptical lenses, that, oh, we did something wrong, and then God just said, hmm, got to make it hard on you now. See, it's a lot deeper than that, I believe. You know, creation is in disarray because the children of God are the ones who were always meant to be its stewards. In the beginning, we were intended to be the kings and queens of creation with a much greater degree of control and authority over it than we have even now, although that's what we're trying to do with science and technology. We're trying to, in our own human way, capture a part of, I think, the glory that we were always intended for from the beginning. And we even see the first expressions of that authority before the fall in Genesis, when Adam is naming all the animals. He's, he's putting everything in its rightful place. He's assigning a name to everything. He's using his mind, and he's saying, you're here, this is what you are, this is what you are, and he's bringing it all together in a beautiful picture. Of course, that wasn't allowed to persist, given our choices. But God gave us this earth to be stewarded by his children, and by forsaking communion with him, we also forsook the beauty and goodness of the earth and we allowed it to fall into decay. So this isn't just, you know, we always want to put this question oftentimes on God's shoulders. And I think that's selling ourselves way too short because who God created us to be as image bearers is to be the stewards of the earth. This is our job. This is our job is to keep the, uh, things together and to watch over things and to, to tend to creation and to bring it to its flourishing. So it's, this is what we're for. To say, oh, God, why don't you do it? Why don't you fix it? Why don't you fix it? Well, that, that's, that's forgetting our place in the picture, and it's forgetting our glory. So that being said, even though things are disordered, the things of this world remain good because God is still their author. So the point isn't that this world is just made of pure evil after the fall. So when we look at terrible things like natural disasters, for instance, we often make the mistaken assumption that we are witnessing something purely evil. There was a uh, theologian I quoted before, Thomas Aquinas, is a medieval uh, theologian. He addressed this issue, which was even in his day, you know, people were talking about this. He writes uh, about these people that are assuming that, oh, if something bad happens, you know, a tree falls on your car or something, that's just pure evil. He says, for if they found a thing hurtful to something by the power of its own nature, they thought the very nature of the thing was evil. As, for instance, if one should say the nature of fire was evil because it burnt the house of a poor man. So Aquinas' point here is not that bad things don't happen. It's that just because something like fire can, in certain contexts, cause damage to things, that doesn't make fire itself evil. You see, if that were the case, we could never use it for anything good, but we certainly do. So this might sound like an academic kind of point, but it's very important because it's, it's about the fundamental perspective that we view the world with. If you look out in the world and you see that everything is just purely corrupt, then it would be better to destroy it than it would be to redeem it. But the whole beautiful picture of God's salvation history is that what he's been doing is not destroying it. He's been always preserving a remnant throughout all of history. There's these periods where there's judgment, and that, and that is always a part of the process, but God always preserves a remnant. He saw fit 
that it was better than wipe us all out and start again to work with the brokenness to bring the good that's there back into order. So finally, so we've talked about ourselves, we've talked about the nature of the world. We know that through our interaction with the world, pains and trials of various sorts can actually be of tremendous value in developing virtues, developing good character. And sometimes pain and suffering is essential to that process. As a, even a Roman philosopher who actually lived right during the time of Christ, uh, his name is Seneca the Younger, he wrote this in a letter to a contemporary of his. He says, I judge you unfortunate because you've never been unfortunate. You've passed through life without an antagonist. No one will know what you can do, not even yourself. For if a man is to know himself, he must be tested. And it's a very wise piece of statement. He's unfortunate because he's never been unfortunate. Take something like courage, for example. You know, people can have courage, even in calm, calm times. But you can't know that you have courage unless you really encounter something fearsome at some point in your life, something with real risk and real danger. Paul echoes this instructive power of hardship in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. There's going to be a lot of glory in our sufferings verses. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. I love it when Paul does this. He has a few moments where he does this and he has these step-by-step -step kind of things that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. All these are Christian virtues. Here Paul lays out a spiritual trajectory in which suffering is given a meaningful and perhaps essential role in acquiring some of life's most valuable qualities. Now, but here you might say, okay, look, that's all well and fine, Luke, but you just... you." You can dance around it all you want, but you just have to admit at a certain point that some things are just bad. There are some things that are just bad and wrong and, and you know, pure bad in life that you, you go through an experience and, and there's nothing redemptive about it. And it just is going to be there like a black spot in your past for as long as you live. So why does God allow those things to happen? Okay, that's, that's a good objection. So to answer, let's consider a story. So there's a tale that's told in uh, Middle Eastern folklore about a man whose prized horse that he has uh, runs away one day, just off and gone. So imagine, put yourself in the position of his neighbor, okay? So if, if that's just happened and you're his neighbor, would you say that's bad luck or good luck? Bad luck, the answer is correct, bad luck, I heard that. 100% uh, <laughs> so far. So, okay, so, so, and you'd be pretty confident in saying, yeah, bad, mm, bad luck, not a good thing that happened to you. And, and if, you know, in those days especially, if you get a prized horse, that could be quite a bit of wealth attached to that. But what if I said that a few days later, the horse comes back, only now he has with him 20 wild horses. He's come back and brought this whole entire group of 20 wild horses. So then, was this horse running off good luck? Or bad luck? Maybe, maybe it was good luck. It depends. Okay, so <laughs> see where, where I'm getting. That's because the story continues, Bob. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's say that uh, later on in that day, you know, the son is taming one of the new horses. He got 20 new horses. Got to tame them. Got to make sure they're, uh, they're as they should be. And uh, one of the horses rears back and it kicks him. It breaks his leg. It breaks this, the, the man's son. 
So was it good luck or was it bad luck that the horses came? Maybe some bad luck, I don't know. Okay, how about this last, last turn? Some days later, uh, there's a gang of thugs that's going by village to village, and that is uh, coercing, forcibly recruiting all the able-bodied men around to raid the surrounding villages and areas. And they go to this man's house, and the man is older, so he's no good for that, but uh, they go to the man's son, and, but they're right about to take him, but then they discover, they look and see his lake is broken. They say, no, we can't, we can't use you. And then they pass by, and the man's son is, is spared from being forced into that. So good luck or bad luck? We'll end on a good note. Good luck. Uh, so we, we could go on, but the purpose of the story is for us to understand that as limited, finite beings with, at very best, a narrow ability to peer into just the near future, it is very difficult to say anything definitive about what role any event has in our lives. It's always a matter of perspective. There's always some future event that can inform us in a way that causes us to reflect back on that with new eyes. Uh, this is a, something that C.S. Lewis captures, a sentiment that he captures beautifully in a wonderful little book he has called Out of the Silent Planet. Who here has read or knows of Out of the Silent Planet? Okay, good. Way too few of you. Way too few. Who's heard of the Narnia? Okay, yes. Chronicles of Narnia. Great. Beautiful fantasy book. Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, well, it's a series, but Out of the Silent Planet is a trilogy that is like a science fiction trilogy that C.S. Lewis wrote. I had no idea about this going through high school. I wish I did. And uh, it's about a guy named Ransom, and he travels uh, in, through space to another planet. And it's this beautiful story. And he meets these creatures on this other planet, and they end up having these adventures and things. And one such of intelligent being that lives there is discussing with this guy Ransom, and he's discussing how memory affects our experiences and kind of this cultural difference between human beings and this other race and how they view that. So this is the creature speaking. It says, a pleasure is full grown only when it is remembered. You are speaking, human, as if the pleasure were one thing and the memory another. It's all one thing. What you call remembering is just the last part of the pleasure. When you and I met, our meeting was over very shortly. It was nothing. But now it is growing into something as we remember it. But we still know very little about it. What will it be when I remember it as I lie down to die? What it makes in me all my days until then? That's the real meeting. The other is only the beginning of it. You say you have poets in your world. Do they not teach you this? <laughs> so sort of a given, given ransom, a little bit of a, of a perspective lesson. So I think as with pleasure, so also with suffering. What it really means in our lives is something we can never fully say until we look back on it from the vantage point of the end of our lives. And as Christians, we would say from the vantage point of eternity itself. Now, despite all this, one might still respond and say, you know what, fine. Uh, you know, you have your neat, logical definitions of free will and this fallen world and how it can all work together for good if you have enough time and the right perspective. But, you know, maybe my daughter just died in a car accident. What good are your words for her or for me? And you know what? If someone, as people have in the past when I've gotten into these discussions, I have to know when to stop uh, sometimes and, and really appreciate whether a person's 
bringing it up because they want to argue or because they really want, they really experience something. I, I agree. I, can, I concede something there. There are some situations in life where head knowledge will not suffice, where we don't want an answer that can be given in words. Not because we're being stubborn, but because the words don't seem to, to get there. You know, Stephen King once said that nightmares exist outside of logic, and there's little fun to be had in explanations. They're antithetical to the poetry of fear. See, there's a realm in which intense suffering takes on a life, on life of its own, and it moves us into a place where no combination of words can reach. And maybe there's, for all of us, there's some moment or series of moments in our lives where we know this, where we've just been through something so terrible that we don't want to hear anything and that there's no word that can console us. There's no eloquent combination of words that will make it go away. This is when the mind draws so deep into itself in response to raw anguish that it will end, in the end, it will either find the divine touch of God or else a gnawing and crippling form of, of madness. See, perhaps it was a similar observation that led John Milton, who's the author of Paradise Lost, to write that the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. See, this is the point at which the individual must either must transcend suffering through grace or else give into it and remain in a terrifying kind of bondage. See, in the final words of this sermon, I'd like to dwell on a couple of historical examples of Christians who conquered the challenge of suffering, not through some intellectual exercise, but through spiritual communion with Jesus Christ and who embodied in their martyrdom, spoiler alert, they're martyrs, uh, <laughs> the words of Paul in Romans 8, Verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul says it's not even worth comparing to the glory. So the first story is, um, just to give a little bit of background, this is, uh, you can all Google this, look it up, it's, you can find it online. Uh, this is the, uh, the passion, it's called the Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, so these are two early Christian uh, martyrs. Uh, Perpetua, who's just going to take a little second to talk about here, uh, was a young, she's say about 22 years old, as the scholars say, 22 years old, Roman woman, very educated. This was not, not a peasant woman. She was an educated member of Roman society. She converts to Christianity at what some people would call the wrong time because it's heavy persecution. So she's baptized and uh, then she's thrown into jail. And you know her father comes in and her father does, tries everything in the book to get her to, to recant and to, to go in. She says, no, I can't. This is, work. this is life. This is eternity here. And, uh, you know, and he does everything and that doesn't work. And they go through all these different things. And Perpetua is gifted with the ability of uh, prophecy. She's gifted with the ability of, of seeing visions. So she has these series of dreams uh, while she's in imprisonment waiting to go into the, uh, the arena. And one of these is just so beautiful. So this is in her own words. Before she died, people came in, and uh, her friends, and recorded this. So uh, this is one vision that she has right before the day they're going to get in, thrown to the, the lions and the gladiators. Um, she sees herself almost doing it in advance. 
So this is where we, we jump in. And there's some weird stuff in here. We're going to cover it, but it's so cool. Um, this is early church stuff. So scarcely at length, we had arrived breathless at the amphitheater when he led me, her, this friend of hers, uh, into the middle of the arena and said to me, do not fear. I am here with you and I am laboring with you. And he departed. And, he ga- and I gazed upon an immense assembly in astonishment. And because I knew that I was given to the wild beasts, I marveled that the wild beasts were not let loose on me. Then there came forth against me a certain Egyptian. Remember that. Certain Egyptian, horrible in appearance, with his backers to fight me. And there came to me as my helpers and encouragers, handsome youths. And I was stripped and became a man. We'll definitely get back to that part. Uh, Then my helpers uh, began to rub me with oil, as was the custom for contests, and I beheld that the Egyptian, on the other hand, was rolling in the dust. And as we drew near to each other and began to deal out blows, he sought to lay hold of my feet while I struck at his face with my heels. Struck at his face with my heels. And I was lifted up in the air, and I began thus to thrust at him as if spurning the earth. But when I saw that there was some delay, I joined my hands so as to twine my fingers with one another, and I took hold upon his head, and he fell on his face, and I trod upon his head. And the people began to shout, and my, ba- and my backers to exult. And I drew near to the trainer and the, took the branch, this symbol of the, of the victory. And he kissed me and said to me, Daughter, peace be with you. And I began to glo- go gloriously to the Santa Vivarian gate. Then I awoke and perceive that I was not to fight with beasts, but against the devil. So this is just a, a, when I first read this, I thought this is crazy and weird, but it's so wonderful because she's given this prophetic vision of when she's going to go out there and she thinks this whole time, well, I'm just going to fight with the beasts. And she realizes there's this whole spiritual dimension. It's enlightened that it's not really the beast that she's fighting. It's the devil himself. So the Egyptian is the one who is the symbol of slavery. That was the ancient Israelites were enslaved there. So that's, that's what the Egyptian represents. And when she's, so there's this whole part about her becoming a man. So uh, the best way to read this uh, is to understand that she is taking on a position as the person of Christ. She is filling the role of Christ because, and the reason why this is a good reading, is because what does she do when she's fighting him? There's all this action and stuff like that, but she says it several times. She strikes at his head with, with the, the heel. She trods upon his head when he's on the ground. Go back to Genesis. Who's, who's the one? The, the serpent will strike your heel, crush his head. This is, this is the Savior we're talking about. So she is embodying in her own sacrifice the, the role of Jesus, getting to stomp on the devil, getting, getting to crush him, getting to show that the powers of the earth and the powers of this world, they, they don't ha- have ultimate say. They, don't, they aren't the final word. And she has this glorious victory. And so then the, the, the narrative goes on and she does, uh, she does die. And, and the way she even dies is, is interesting because the animals don't quite go for her and they have to send in people to finally you know, stab everyone to, to end it. And she, she's stabbed and she's still alive. And, and she actually takes the, the sword f- uh, from the guy who's there because he, he's kind of blown away by her. And she, she puts it to her own throat, and, uh, and the, li- the final line says, it's perhaps the case that someone so pure and so holy 
uh, couldn't have died, that the devil was so afraid to come close to her that it would have had, it had to be in the end by her, her own hand, her own will to say, no, let's finish this. I'm ready to go home. Uh, so just a wonderful account. You can read through the whole thing. It's great. And as we draw to a close, there's just one other example I want to share this morning. And this is of uh, a man named Ignatius of Antioch. And he was a martyr. He was martyred in the year 108 AD. So this is right after the apostles. And this is great stuff. So he writes this letter to uh, the church in Rome. And uh, in this letter, he knows he's going to be martyred. He knows he's going to die. And he also knows that his friends in the church are going to want to try and stop him. Stop the martyrdom from happening. And his whole encouragement is, you know, I mean, if I was in his position, I might say, Here, here's a plan, guys. Here's what we can do. Uh, I know you, you, you go here, you go here. Okay, we can do this, and then I can get away, and then we can keep doing our stuff. You know, he doesn't do that. He actually says the exact opposite. And here's a great passage, and then we'll close. He says, It is the hope of this world's prince to get hold of me and undermine my resolve, set as it is upon God. Pray let none of you lend him any assistance, but take my part instead, for it is the part of God. Do not have Jesus Christ on your lips and the world in your heart. Do not cherish thoughts of grudging me my fate. Even if I were to come and implore you in person, do not yield to my pleading. Here and now, as I write in the fullness of life, I am yearning for death with all the sweetness of a lover. Earthly longings have been crucified. In me, there is left no spark of desire for mundane things, but only a murmur of living water that whispers within me, come to the Father. There is no pleasure for me in any meats that perish or the delights of this life. I am fain for the bread of God, even the flesh of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David. And for my drink, I crave that blood of his, which is love imperishable. And how wonderful an image, especially since we just celebrated communion. But he's saying, don't try and stop me, guys. Yeah, I know you're going to want to, and I, know, and I know you have good hearts. He says, but, it, but there's something else going on here. And, I, and I've, I've transcended. I, I, I'm no longer interested in these mundane things. God has shown me who he is, and I'm only interested in him. I'm only interested in knowing and being and participating in his life. So these accounts portray souls which had grown so intimate in their relationship to Jesus that the threats of worldly suffering, which most people would look at with despair, with hopelessness, became to them the purest of opportunities to mirror in some small way the sacrificial love of their Savior. They had transcended the worst the world could muster. And again, not by being smarter, not by being stronger, but just by being closer to Christ. And in this way, they bring to life the teachings found in the New Testament, this time Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. What a marvelous little passage that is. It's a gift. We think of belief and salvation, that's, that's the gift. The suffering is maybe the price you pay for the gift. But no, that's been granted to us to believe, and it's been granted that we can suffer. It's been granted that we can live like Christ lived. We can share in what love really means. And further, last passage, in Philippians 3, chapter 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and share His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You can't 
get to the resurrection unless you be willing to become like him in his death. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to the world. You have to die to the mundane things. You have to die to all the idols that we set up for ourselves so that you can live with him in his resurrection. Amen. So that's the unique gift of Christianity. And that's what I want to communicate to us this morning, that Christ, Jesus Christ chose the path of suffering in this life so that anyone else who finds themselves there will never be alone. They will never have... It won't have anything less than the power and glory of God himself to console them. By definition, the great pains of this life will never be a simple or easy thing to bear. They cannot be erased, and sometimes they cannot even be avoided. But by the grace and mercy of God, they can be transcended into a bliss and perfection that comes only from following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. There may always be a question mark after suffering, but over that mark, we can boldly stamp the cross of Christ and the God who made suffering the instrument of his salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, thank you for our time together this morning. And, and I pray that your spirit would, would move and, and thrive within everybody here, Lord, that, um, that nothing that I may have incidentally said, would come across as trite or superficial, Lord, but would, would strike into the heart of this issue, Lord, that we struggle so often with, given our, our limitations, that suffering is real, we know it, but you are more real than that, God. And we pray that we would claim hold of that, that we would embrace that in our lives, Lord, and, and just to embrace, embrace the words of your Scripture, that who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution famine or nakedness? No. Lord, we know that in all these things we are more than conquerors, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor powers can separate us from your love, God. So we pray that we would take that encouragement into the world as a light, that when we suffer and still have joy, the world would look at that and say, I want what these people have. I want this eternal hope. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.